when um, when we do ending Cleopatra, which is part of the point, but it's our official last day. Uh, so we were looking at Act 5, Scene 3, which is when uh, the doctor comes in and Macbeth is um, taunting the boy Malcolm, who is born of woman. And... Um, uh, he repeats that twice. So what's the boy Malcolm? Was he not born of woman? The spirits that know all mortal consequences have pronounced me thus. Fear not the death. No man that's born of woman shall e'er have power upon thee. So twice he misuses the phrase um, and uh, is emphasizing the word woman rather than the word born. And... Um, of course, what he's heard is that none of woman born, not um, none that's born of woman. And that tells you a little bit uh, that's worth, um, or w what you can discover that um, from that is a little bit about how uh, iambic pentameter works, how uh, Shakespearean poetry works, which is that last words in a line are usually something that people notice that are that or don't notice but that should be emphasized so it's part of the structure of a poetic line that where the line ends up is what will turn out to count and so when Macbeth says no man that's born of woman then the word that gets emphasized is woman if it's none of woman born then the word that gets emphasized is born um, but he can be fooled because there's also the question of rhyme. I, did, I just want to give you um, a sense of what the fact that these plays are written largely in verse, what effect that fact has. So we talked a little bit earlier in this class about what um, one cognitive critic of Shakespeare calls fluent forgetting, which is that um, if you have to fake something because you've, uh, because you've forgotten your lines, a good way of faking it is, it is to get into the rhythm of things. It's freestyling, as we say in hip-hop. And um, essentially, that's what it goes, freestyling really does go back to verse drama and to actors who've forgotten their lines. Um, if they're good at freestyling, they can keep things going. And um, it's reasonable, right? Yeah, no, I was just, yeah. No, what? <laughs> No, I just, um, you're, you're about to be in Tempest. Right? Oh, I was yeah. just thinking about. <laughs> I, <laughs> would not, I would not improv. No, 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 you specifically. Oh, <laughs> like, just, yeah, sorry. you guys know the Tempest playing next weekend? Here, do you want to announce it? I, we're Who are you doing, playing? I'm Ariel. Okay, good. Um, we're doing the Tempest at the department next weekend and the weekend after. Sorry, so. don't mean <laughs> Okay. So that's happening. <laughs> So that's a thing. I'll be yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> okay, so your rebels I'll also are, be there. Your rebels are beginning. Uh, yeah, we have a 12-hour attack tomorrow. Oh, yes, your rebels so, are really beginning. Okay. Copy or anything. So, but what happens when you forget a line? Um, when I've been doing Shakespeare, I've actually never really forgotten a line. Like, there was one time where, like, we had, like, we had a problem with the sound system, and there was, like, this really loud feedback, and it just, like, 
completely shook me out of what I was doing, but everyone else was also, like, offset by it, so I had, like, a second to, like, figure out, like, what I was saying <laughs> again, uh-huh. but, yeah, um, fortunately, that's never really happened, knock on wood, hopefully it doesn't happen now, <laughs> so. Okay, how about if you're singing a song and you don't know the words? Do you ever make them up? No. Does anyone? I know yeah, someone yeah. who does. My like best friend never knows the words to any song, but she insists on singing them, and so it's always just like really random like <laughs> inputs that make no sense. And then I ask her about them, and she's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's I mean it's it's similar in sound, and like she keeps like the rhythm and everything. Yeah. Like she knows the music. She just. Like doesn't know what the words are. Yeah. And so like maybe an analogy can be drawn there, but yeah. Yeah. it drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, sort of under the same vein. Um, I was in the uh, pit musical for uh, musicals back in our high school, and our theater teacher always told the kids like if you forget if you forget like a line, try to think of the keywords in the line and then try to fill in the blanks as is. Right. So, like, there were kids who forgot, like, one word. So, say the line was, like, half as much as me, and they'd end up saying something along the lines of, like, half as much as me, uh-huh. switching out the conjunction in the middle. Right, right. Okay. Um, yeah. No, I was just saying that it's, um, well, so I'm directing a show, not The Tempest, this semester, and it's quite funny because I tell all the actors, like, just go with it. Like, mm-hmm. you know what happens in this scene. If you forget a line, try and just, like, go with the flow yeah. as much as you can. And it's... Sometimes really funny stuff comes out of it. Sometimes not so funny stuff comes out of it. It just, like... I don't know. It just, it's just interesting. Like, I don't know. When people forget a line, it's so easy to, like... One person, like, says one word wrong, and all of a sudden you're, like, completely thrown off. Yeah. Um, yeah, so part of what it means to... Uh, to be an actor in Shakespeare's stage is to, if you do forget, if you are engaged in fluent forgetting, what you have to do is um, keep things going. You can tell from uh, Foreman's response to Macbeth, uh, you, that's gives you a little bit of a sense of how well they, uh, someone in 1610 is an intelligent person, a literate person, um, is able to... Did people read his little uh, one-paragraph biography? He was an astrologer, which meant that he was kind of... Um, it meant he, he um, had a lot of books. He was studious. He was wrong. But he knew a lot of um, things that come from reading and from research. And so he goes to see a Shakespeare play, and he gives you an account of what he saw. And it's, you know, he's getting the names wrong. He is interested in various things. He's able to follow it. But it's a little bit like, you know, watching. For for Shakespeare's audience, it would be a little bit like for you guys to watch um, a challenging HBO show. Um, you know, one which is, or an Aaron Sorkin show. One where, where, where the dialogue is really good and fast and snappy and so on. And where you miss a lot. And um, sometimes you need to watch something two or three times to get it. And, uh, you know, it's not just you. And um, it's that part of the point of the shows um, now is that you should want to rewatch it. Like, you watch this episode of, of um, Deadwood or whatever. Do you guys watch Deadwood? Did you watch Deadwood? You're too young. It's too bad because one of the stars of Deadwood was a student of mine here who took a, did a senior 
um, project with me on Henry James. Um, Robin Weigert, she's great. So you should watch Deadwood. She plays Calamity Jane. Um, so, um, but Deadwood is famous for, actually the writer was um, a teacher of my college girlfriend, so everything comes together. Um, and um, the, um, the, the dialogue is, in general, to follow what's going on in a plot, you don't have to get all the dialogue. If you did, you'd be in trouble because you miss it all the time. And, you know, if you put on closed captioning, you can see how much you miss because the closed captioning has stuff that you're not even hearing. Uh, the, the person who's doing the captioning is playing it over and over again to get it right. So that's true in Shakespeare also. And part of the idea then is that you're following partly because of tone and partly because of emphasis and partly because of what people are, um, are doing on stage. And if you can do fluent forgetting, if you get good at improvising an iambic pentameter as people who are speaking, memorizing iambic pentameter all the time, do get good at that, especially if they're interacting with other people who are speaking an iambic pentameter. If you get good at it, then you can keep the play going even if you've forgotten your lines. Um, if you know roughly what you're supposed to say, and you can keep the play going. So one reason, as, as we said before, one reason for, um, the, for the plays being written in iambic pentameter, just to put it in, in too crude a fashion, is that it enables fluent forgetting. But um, just going back to what Matt said, what you tend not to forget are last words of a line. Um, so it's, it is the nature, it's actually the cognitive nature of iambic pentameter in Indo-European, sorry, it, of, of uh, metrical Indo-European poetry. So do people know what I mean by Indo-European? Um, so most, though not all, languages spoken in Europe and um, um, languages including English go back to a language, a, reconstruct, a language that's been reconstructed, which is called Proto-Indo-European. And it's the language that Sanskrit comes out of, that Hindi comes out of, that Bengali comes out of, that English comes out of, that German comes out of, that French comes out of, that um, Italian comes out of, that Swedish comes out of, and so on. Um, 5,000 years ago, there was a language called Proto-Indo-European, probably less than 5,000 years ago, but there's a language called Proto-Indo-European. And you can reconstruct the vocabulary of that language um, the way you can reconstruct in evolution the ancestors of um, all the representatives of a class or a phylum or something like that. So uh, I've talked about this in another class. I don't think I mentioned in this class. But for example, um, the word punch, meaning a drink, like do you guys know what a nice fruit juicy Hawaiian punch is? Um, did we talk about that in this class? I don't think so. Um, so that's actually a Sanskrit word. And do you know why it's called punch? No, because punch doesn't mean that in Sanskrit. Does it have anything to do with five? With what? With five? Yes. With five fruits or something? Yes, because, they're five, because it's a mixture of five different liquids. So punch is a mixture of five different liquids. Um, yeah, and it does have to do with five. 
And did you know that, or were you guessing? Oh, I was guessing. I yeah. know, like, punch is, like, Sanskrit for five. So. Right, exactly. So punch is Sanskrit for five. Um, in um, um, Western European languages, like English, punch is something that goes into someone's face, um, as in the Hawaiian punch commercial. It's like you punch someone. No, but does that have something to do with, like, five fingers five in a fist? Five fingers into a fist, yes. Um, so what's happened is that there was an Indo-European, Proto-Indo-European word that meant five, that um, you can trace its lineage in different languages, and that lineage um, in languages that don't seem to be remotely like each other um, you can see that those languages have a common lineage in the same way that whales and wolves have a common lineage. And so the, there's a lot of study of um, Indo-European languages, languages that derive from Proto-Indo-European. There's actually a great thing online, which is a dictionary of Proto-Indo-European roots. It's American Heritage does it. It's really fantastic. Um, so you can look up, if you look up the etymology of a word in English, it doesn't only get you back to Greek or Latin or Old English, but it gets you back to Proto-Indo-European. And it tells you other, what, what the word meant in Proto-Indo-European and um, different ways that it then developed in different languages. So um, one of my favorites is that the word... Um, it won't be your favorite, but it's my favorite. Um, that the word text, as in a literary text, and the word dachshund are related. Um, so how is that? Well, text originally comes from a word that means weaving. It's something like tech, and it means to weave, as in textile. And what a text is, is a weaving of <coughs> words together. Um, that's why it's called a text, especially if, if they're woven on the page with lines on the page. A dachshund is a German word. We all love dogs and hate cats, right? Wasn't that what you guys were saying as I came in? Um, no, you weren't. It's sad. Um, a dachshund is a German word for a kind of dog, literally a beaver hunter. Um, hund meaning hound, meaning hunter. Um, and a dox is a word for beaver, or an older word for beaver, because beavers weave their dams out of branches. So these two words, which you would never guess are related to each other, are related to each other. Um, so there's a lot of study in the linguistics of Proto-Indo-European. And one thing that's noticed is that Proto-Indo-European poetry tends to follow a rule called loose onsets and strict endings, which is to say that a line of poetry can wobble at the beginning as long as it falls into the proper rhythm by the time you get to the end of the line. So um, if you notice lines of poetry, if, um, if you try to write an iambic pentameter, if you try to improvise iambic pentameter, what will happen with and if you try to freestyle, you know, even in, in rap, it'll be the same thing, is you'll have a few words that you'll kind of have to cram together to get the line going, but then the line falls into place. 
And that falling into place is an experience that both writers and actors and also the audience have that experience. So, you know, you can, you can think it's not a puzzle, but maybe you should think it is a puzzle. Why rhymes are always at the ends of lines, why there's so little poetry in which the first words of lines rhyme and then the line can go wherever it wants. Um, you know, from, from first principles, it doesn't seem like there'd be anything weird about, anything weirder about poetry whose first words um, rhymed rather than whose last words rhymed. But in all, I don't know if this is true about Chinese poetry, I think it is. Um, I know that there's a lot of rhymed Chinese poetry, but in all Indo-European rhymed poetry, it's always the last words that rhyme. You can have internal rhymes, but, but um, rhymes, rhymed poetry in Russian, rhymed poetry in English, rhymed poetry in Italian, rhymed poetry in Romanian, um, in all, in, and in German, it's always heading towards a rhyme at the end of the line um, and not a rhyme at the start of the line. And um, is that true in Chinese? Yeah. Are the rhymes at the ends of lines as well? And are there any poems? Can you think of any where the rhymes are beginnings of lines? I can. Okay. So, um, is that true in Korean? No, we don't really. Rhyme. You don't rhyme at all. We count meters, but not. Okay. And what about loose onset, strict ending? Is that something? Because I I don't know if it, it I haven't read about non-Indo-European languages, but is that metrically? Does that does it work that way as well? That is the. So, so for example, my go-to example for this is is always Emily Dickinson's um, great poem, "After Great Pain, a Formal Feeling Comes," which is a poem about writing poetry, as you will recall. And um, if you think about that line, it's not perfect. Iambic pentameter goes. Can you guys do it? One, two, three. Da 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 da. da, 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 da. So, um, so if you were the kind of person you might have been in fourth grade, or I was in fourth grade, and I'm told to scan a line like that, I will read it in a very artificial way, which which is I'll say, after great pain, a formal feeling comes, and what am I getting wrong if I do it that way? Someone say the line, after great pain, I'll say it. You say it, after great pain, a formal feeling comes. So if I say after, what have I done wrong? That's like not how the stress of that word works. Yeah. Yeah, it's after, not after. Um, and then it's not great pain, it's after what? Great pain. Yeah, and part of what she's doing there is she's wanting the sound, the A sound, to persist after great pain, which really makes you feel formally the great pain that she's describing. It's, it just lingers. You can't just get away. It's not trivial. It's after great pain. So that's not iambic pentameter at all. It starts with a trochee, after, rather than after. Um, and then you get what's called a spondee which is two stresses in a row instead of a stress and an unstressed syllable. So after great pain, and then 
what happens is a formal feeling comes to the line. Then you get into iambic, into iambic. So it's after great pain or after great pain, a formal feeling comes. And in those last six syllables, the line becomes iambic. And what happens is the loose onset means that there's a lot of give in the first two feet of a line of poetry, especially in the first foot, but um, also in the first two feet. And then the line hits its stride and becomes iambic. So what you will, people who studied this, actually someone at Brandeis was one of the major people who studied this um, 50 years ago, um, uh, noticed that if you look at, you know, 100,000 lines of English poetry, English iambic pentameter, um, if you look at 100,000 lines of English iambic pentameter, what you'll find, it, find is the first foot is the most likely foot in which you will have a trochee rather than an iamp. Um, something like 15 or 20 percent of first feet in English iambic pentameter are trochaic. Um, the fourth foot will, they're vanishingly small examples of trochaic inversion in the fourth foot. That is where you would have after in the fourth foot rather than in the first. So what would that sound like? A formal feeling comes after great pain. Or, you know, um, um, after content, so that you can get the fifth foot still to be iambic. So a formal feeling comes after content. And that just doesn't sound like poetry. It's fine, but it doesn't sound like poetry. Whereas after great pain, a formal feeling comes, does. And so what you can see or what you can hear there, I hope what you can hear there is how the line heads towards poetry. And so part of what fluent forgetting is about is that if you've forgotten the words, you can mess with the beginning of the line that you've forgotten. You can cram stuff in. You can, you can try um, and, get it, um, and, and get the meaning that you want. Um, but always with the sense that you're going to be hitting a stride that will come soon enough. See what I did there? You'll hit a stride that will come soon enough. And if an audience is hearing that you're hitting a stride, for them, a whole lot of that is going to take the place of specific lexical meaning. It just means that in the conflict between characters that any, that any interchange of speeches is about, in that conflict between characters, the person speaking will land where they want to. And even if you don't quite know the meaning of what they're trying to say, they're landing where they want to land. And they're doing that simply by the rhythm and then the other person will pick up from there. And you can still feel the form of conflict. You, it, it becomes a kind of um, oddly verbal ballet where it's the form rather than the content that is um, still allowing you to see the way the different speakers are 
dancing around each other, dancing into each other, um, uh, pushing and pulling, or maybe you, you could compare it to a martial art rather than to ballet, um, that you can see the movements that they're making, the blocks and the parries and, and um, the advances and the retreats and so forth. And you can hear it just in the rhythm. And, but it also gives the actors leeway at the beginnings of lines to say the content that matters and then at the end of the line to add the form that matters because that's how iambic pentameter works anyhow. And um, what that then means is that the end of a line is often what, what Shakespeare is doing in Macbeth is he is treating the end of the line as a place where the equivocation can occur. Because when Macbeth hears laugh to scorn the power of man, for none of woman born can harm Macbeth, you could, there are two things that are, the, the equivocation on a formal level works in two ways that on the one hand, none of woman born should tell you that born is the crucial word, not woman. And that Macbeth is getting it wrong when he says he was born of woman. He can't harm me. He was born of woman. Um, so born is the crucial word because it's the last word of the line. On the other hand, because it's rhyming because what you're hearing is the last word of a line that rhymes laugh to scorn the power of man for none of woman born can harm Macbeth the audience is kind of getting an idea that the reason born is the last word of the line is not because it's the most important word as far as its meaning goes but because through a kind of poetic inversion in order to get the rhyme you say the words in an order that isn't quite the natural order of non-rhymed poetry. So if you had seen the phrase none of woman born in a context where the line isn't rhymed you might notice born as a crucial word more than when it does rhyme. Or a way to say that is, yes, it is a crucial word, but if it's in a rhymed context, it's crucial because it rhymes rather than because it refers to an opposition between um, uh, vaginal birth and cesarean section. That um, you, you say, ah, born, you know, what you're doing, of course you're not doing this consciously. This is just a kind of automatic process an automatic cognitive process that you're doing. But what you're doing is essentially saying, oh, the line ends with the word born, clearly an important word. Why is it important? Because it rhymes with scorn. And that's the equivocation. It's, in fact, the line ends with born, clearly an important word. Why is it important? Because it's different from another way that you could come into the world. But because you think you know the answer, which is that it rhymes, you um, don't think any more about what that means. But when Macbeth 
then meets Macduff at the end of the play, and Macduff says Macduff was from his mother's womb untimely wrenched, then wrenched is in the same place in the line as born had been. And at that point, you realize, Macbeth realizes, that born was important, but not because it rhymed. Born was important because it referred to how you come into the world. Yeah. I think also the rhyme could help us to remember later when we see wrenched that born came at the end. Exactly. In other words, it mattered that it rhymed for two reasons. One, because that explains why born is at the end of the line in a way that's not the true explanation, but that the audience accepts without a second thought. But two, because rhymes are memorable. Um, you know, that's a standard thing to say about rhymes. Uh, the reason uh, you go through the months um, in the wrong order when you try to remember how many days there are in February, 30 days half September, April, June, and November. Why isn't it 30 days hath April, June, November? Sorry, even that was wrong. 30 days hath, as everyone knows, 30 days hath, do you guys know this? You use it? So 30 days hath April, June, September, and November. All the rest have 31 except for February. Which has 28 or sometimes 29 on leap years. So less memorable. Yeah. I, I recently watched a video on um, a YouTube video about this, and actually the extra day is the 25th. They slotted it in like Roman times. They slotted in the 25th and then just moved all the days. Oh wow! Um, moved all the days over one so that they didn't have two 25ths. Oh, so there was a. That's the. Yeah, it's not actually an extra 29th, but they would do in Roman times. Yeah, so the 29th just has to be a 29th, so they get. So they, they can get, get an extra, extra 25th then. Wow. All right. Um, yeah, the, ca the calendar is amazing. Thomas Pynchon has it. You guys know that um, uh, the year 1900 was not a leap year. Do people know this? Or 1800 or 1700? Yeah, this is something you don't need to know in your lives because you won't live long enough for it to matter. But the, Well, some of you might, possibly. The year 2100 is not a leap year. Um, if a year is to see, don't say you learn nothing in this class. <laughs> if a year is divisible by a hundred, then in order to be a leap year, it also has to be divisible by four hundred. Why? Because oh, yeah. yeah, I feel Why? like I've heard. Because, <laughs> because otherwise, you get out of sync with the sun. So do you guys know about the Julian and the Gregorian calendar? Do you know why the um, October Revolution took place on November 7th? Um, oh, because they all got... Yeah, because over, <laughs> over the millennia, um, the calendar got screwed up. And um, the, the solstice is supposed to be December 21st, but it ended up um, um, by around the year 1800, the what's called the Julian calendar was 11 days off from where it had been when it was established. And um, so I forget the exact date, but in the West it was somewhere in the, different in different countries, but somewhere around the year um, uh, 1700, the calendar actually went 11 days forward. Uh, 11 days were skipped. Imagine if that had been your birthday, one of those 11 days. Mm -hmm. um, you skip 11 days. Yeah. 
How? How? Um, <laughs> they welcome the march. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, basically. In fact, Shakespeare's birthday, which we celebrate on April 23rd, if you count days, it's actually um, May 4th. In other words, if you were to count 365 and 366 days backwards, like real years, um, you would land on May 4th. The reason it's April 23rd is because um, the um, the 11-day skip isn't taken into account. People like the name of the day rather than the number of years since Shakespeare was born, the exact number of years since Shakespeare was born. Yeah? I, I, I was just getting really sad now after learning in like grade school that there are 365 days in a year, and then that whole theory got turned around when someone said it's actually 364 and a quarter. Thanks 365 and a quarter. Yeah, that's why there's a leap year, because every four years you have to deal with those four quarters. So I, I hope that doesn't make you sadder. I'll be over it. Okay. Um, so Thomas Pynchon actually has a novel, I think it's his greatest novel, Mason and Dixon, in which, the, in which um, those 11 days are inhabited by ghosts who are wandering through time for eternity because they just have no place to land. So, um, it's sad. Do we know exactly which days were missed? Like, do I, we know, like, it was the 3rd of June? We do know, but we is not me. Fair enough. We in Wikipedia know. Fair enough. Um, you can also figure out what day it is in the French Revolutionary Calendar, which is fun. Um, so, uh, and I think there's a website that if you put in any date, it will tell you what date it is in the French Revolutionary calendar. It's like now it's the year 226 or something, according to the Revolutionary calendar. And it might be like, um, this might actually be Sherman All. This month might be Sherman All. That would be interesting. Um, and all the, all the days in the French Revolutionary calendar, all the, all the months in the French Revolutionary calendar, I think have... 40 days? No, they can't be that many. Maybe it's 30 days, and then there's some leap days um, as well. But the French Revolution calendar, everything's divisible by 10. Weeks are 10 days long, which seems shocking. Um, but every week is actually 10 days long, not 7 days long. And you think, that's so unnatural. Um, <laughs> but so are 7 days. Um, all right, so the point, uh, as Nicole says, is that you remember the word born, um, Shakespeare is making sure to have the the lines repeated over and over again so that the big reveal can be that the word born is not metaphorical um, or semi-metaphorical the way it seems. That is, that it's not just a fancy way of saying, well, that, as the Bible says it, as, as the book of Matthew says, all of us are born of women, um, but rather that um, we're not all born of women. Um, we all have women as mothers, so something that seems figurative turns out to be literal. None of woman born can harm Macbeth, but that is, um, but Macbeth simply understands that as um, um, born of, um, of as having a woman as a mother. Um, I just want to look for one thing. 
to give you, again, a sense of fluent forgetting. Um, so one of the things, okay, maybe this will actually give it to you in Wikipedia. Um, oh, yeah, cool. All right. Um, so one, we talked about this a little bit, how we have copies of Shakespeare's plays. And we, um, so some plays exist only in the folio, as you know, Macbeth is one of them. Um, some plays only exist in quarto, that is, in plays published often during Shakespeare's lifetime, usually in, during Shakespeare's lifetime, that for whatever reason didn't make it to the folio. And some exist in two or three different versions, a quarto version, a folio version, sometimes a couple of quarto versions. And quarto, you remember, is a book this size, and folio is a book whose sheets are the size of uh, a copy of the New York Times. Um, some quartos are what are called bad quartos. And um, the reason they're bad is that we can compare them with other versions of the play, and it's clear that uh, these things were put together in um, a, well, I think I used the word before, in a bootleg fashion. And the bootleg version of Shakespeare is often that there'll be people, I'm, we talked about this like the first week, there'll be people who, in the audience who are trying to take down the plays in shorthand, and they make a lot of mistakes. And the fact that they make a lot of mistakes, again, can tell you how well they could hear what was actually going on on stage. Because it's not only that they couldn't write fast enough, although that is part of it, but it's also that they're mishearing some of what's going on or they're just not able to follow. It's noisy, it's loud, it's crowded, um, and um, there are birds screeching overhead. And um, um, so, so there's a lot they're not getting. And again, that's why fluent forgetting is possible. That is why if you improvise, it's not going to matter that much because people, there's a lot people aren't following anyhow. Um, then some of them, and we talked about this as well, I think, are paid, actors are paid to recite the scenes or the plays that they were in. And so, so you can tell that, that that's happened because they recite their own parts pretty well. Um, they recite their cues okay, and the scenes that they're not in, they don't get well at all. But here, I think, is a neat example of fluent forgetting. Um, and it may have been... Um, how, it, how this gets forgotten, we don't know. But here is... But this is the bad quarter of Hamlet, and presumably the, an actor is trying to recite something that he is also forgetting. So it's almost certainly not Burbage who played Hamlet, um, but it's someone who knew a fairly famous speech in Hamlet but kind of forgot it. So, to be or not to be. I, there's the point. <laughs> to die, to sleep, is that all? I, all. No, to sleep, to dream. I marry, there it goes. So, do you remember how it actually goes? To die, to sleep? For chance to dream, I bears the rub. So, this guy totally forgot. Plus, he's already said, I bears the point. So, no, to sleep, to dream. I, Mary, there it goes. So, he says, yeah, I got it. I got the line right. But he doesn't. All he has is, I'm getting the rhythm right. 
And now I have the, the meter as I wish. That's all he has, is the meter as he wishes. Actually, you can't say meter. Um, for in that dream of death, when we awake, and born before an everlasting judge, from whence no passenger ever returned, the undiscovered country, at whose sight the happy smile and the accursed damned. But for this, the joyful hope of this, who'd bear the scorns and flattery of the world, scorned by the right rich, the rich cursed of the poor, the widow being oppressed, the orphan wrong, the taste of hunger or a tyrant's reign, and thousand more calamities beside, to grunt and sweat under this weary life. So there he almost gets it right, to grunt and sweat under this weary life, when that he may his full quietum make with a bare bodkin, who would this endure but for a hope of something after death? Which pushes the brain and doth confound the sense, which makes us rather bear those evils we have than fly to others that we know not of. I that, oh, this conscience makes cowards of us all. Lady, in thy orisons be all my sins remembered. Um, so I think that's probably a pretty good example of what faking it when you've forgotten and trying to make it when you're faking it. That's probably a pretty good example of, of what that was like and um, what's going on on stage. So Shakespeare exploits all these possibilities. That's the point. And it's not that he's thinking, well, how am I going to get born at the end of the line? How am I going to get it at the beginning of the line? Or get it not at the end of the line? Um, I think he is um, simply thinking in terms of emphasis. And if you're Shakespeare and you are thinking in terms of emphasis, that comes out naturally in your, um, and intuitively in your sense of meter and in your sense of rhyme. So um, it's not that Shakespeare has worked this out really carefully the way you might work um, a lipogram out. That is, you might, um, as people have, uh, translate a Shakespeare speech into words that don't contain the letter E, and then you have to think really, really hard about um, each word. Um, we talked about this a little bit in English 11 um, for those who took it um, with me as well, but um, there is, for example, a translation of the raven, which um, without the letter E in it, um, and it's uh, the um, what happens at the end of every stanza is, quote, that blackbird not again. Um, and so there, it's not great, but it's No, fun. but like, why make it without an E? Because it's there. <laughs> because you can. If you can, you can. Okay. Now, there's a famous novel, um, French novel, by a guy named Georges Perec, who, uh, called La Disparation, uh, The Disappearance. And... Um, it's a detective novel. Something has disappeared. We don't quite know what. When it first came out in 1973, I think it got good, though not great reviews. People thought it was a little bit weird. But the reviewers didn't notice that there was no letter E in the novel. And that's what it disappeared. The only letter E was in the author's name. And this is harder to do in French than in English. And yeah, it's I not easy to do in English. And among the things that he did was he, was he translates the raven into French without the letter E. He also translates some Shakespeare into French without the letter E and so on. Um, and then um, uh, a British writer translated it into English. So he couldn't call it the disappearance because it has the letter E in it. So he called it a void. That is, there is something that's gone. And he has to retranslate um, 
English and American poetry that has been translated into French into an English version without the letter E. So that's where that blackbird comes from, is um, this novel called Avoid, which you should not avoid. It's a good novel. Um, yeah. So what is the value of that, other than just being kind of gimmicky? Because it just yeah. feels kind of gimmicky, and if there's like a rationale, even if it's kind of a weak one, I'd be willing to like go with that, but it, it does kind of feel just like showy for the sake of being showy. So if it's not done really well, it's bad. But if it is done really well, it is, um, you're, you're, there's there's a kind of strange, um, fascinating um, power to the unexpectedness of the words and yet the clarity of the meaning. And um, Proust says that that Proust in um, uh, in Search of Lost Time has an amazing throwaway line where he's it's a simile, but he's saying that um, sometimes it's the tyranny of rhyme that has brought poets to their greatest lines. And if you think of that phrase, the tyranny of rhyme, that is that um, you could say the same thing about rhyming. What's the value of rhyming? Uh, Why does rhyme matter? And one answer is that it matters to the writer. That is that if you're trying to write a rhymed poem, if you're trying to write a metrical poem, Um, then you are forced to think about words much more intensely than if you're just writing naturally the way they would come to you naturally. So the point is that that, that there's a a kind of um, dialectic between fluency and and consideration. And uh, if you're looking for a rhyme, sometimes that's going to cause you to do a whole lot of thinking about how to get a line to rhyme, what else you have to say in the line to make it rhyme, what you have to say to make the rhyme seem a natural one rather than an unnatural one, and so on. So if you ask what's the point, um, the reason that poems rhyme is not to make it harder for poets to write them, although arguably it is, but um, in general, that's not the reason that poems rhyme. It's because rhyme does interesting work, um, like the work of making born prominent without giving away the reason that born is prominent. So that's just to summarize what we were saying. Um, But rhyme also has the effect of inciting and eliciting the inventive powers of the poet who has to think about things they otherwise wouldn't think about. And in thinking about those things, they plumb deeper and deeper. So when Peric writes lipograms, most lipograms are not very good, but when Peric writes them, they are, a lipogram just means some letter, it will not appear in the text. And the hardest lipogram to do is one in the letter E, in English and in French, not in all languages. When he writes them, he's forced to think really, really hard about every formulation. And there's a loss, which is that there are a whole lot of formulations that are simply not permitted to him. But there's a gain, which is that he's thought so hard about every single word in the novel that you can count on the fact that none of them are there thoughtlessly and that everything counts. 
and um, the way he's thought it through has um, produced really striking descriptions, insights, um, uh, psychological um, pro probes into his characters' minds, and um, you can get something really cool out of it. Um, there is a novel in English that was originally um, also a lipogram, also written without the letter E, called Gadsby, not Gatsby, but Gadsby, and it's just not good. Um, and that's because you have to be really good to make it work. So you're right to think just doing it is what Dr. Johnson once said about um, a dog walking on its hind legs. Um, and he says, well, it's not that the dog um, walks well, it's that you're amazed to see the dog do it at all. Um, and so that's true with Gadsby. It's not that it's a good novel, it's just that it's amazing that it doesn't have the letter E in it. Um, however, um, if it's done well, it can be something amazing. And for Perrick, it is something amazing. The way he does it, it really is something amazing. So, um, so for a writer, the constraints, and there are other constraints, Ulipo, which is the group that Perrick belonged to, um, they would give themselves constraints and write according to those constraints. I, I think I mentioned this as well, but another thing that Perrick did is he wrote an essay on palindromes. Everyone know what a palindrome is? Race car? So this is a 5,000 word essay on palindromes, and you only need the first half to read the whole thing. So think how hard that is. And it's about palindromes. It's, yeah, not easy. Oh my god. Yeah. I mean, I would get a headache just looking at the first page. Yeah. Sorry, and is each word within No, that? not each word. It's, you, okay. it's, so you space it differently. Yeah, you space it differently, but you read the first 2,500 two words, and then you yeah, read, a, read it backwards to get the second half of the essay. And it's not the same words. They're not the same words. Um, oh, I know what you're saying. Oh, okay, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like impressive for the sake of being impressive. Not if it's a good essay, which it is. That's nightmarish. I don't know. I, like, I completely agree with what you're saying, and like it makes sense as like a rationale for why you would do this, but it also feels like so highly artificial. Like, making the assertion that putting constraints on you forces you to pay more attention to what you're saying is absolutely true and, like, makes a lot of sense. But you could also just pay attention without those constraints. <laughs> <laughs> there is that, but but there is something... Look, that we're getting to a whole lot of the theory of form here, uh, but the very quick version would be that the way poetry and the way music work is that we're somehow brought as uh, either as writers or composers or as listeners or readers, we're brought to be paying attention to two separate systems that are in counterpoint with each other. That is that each one is um, doesn't have any or much contentful relation to the other. And yet, we are firing on all cylinders because we're keeping track of both. So that um, in poetry, for example, the line endings, the, the lines have to hit their mark at the, end, at the end of every line. And it doesn't matter what they're saying, they have to hit the mark 
no matter what they're saying, a line ending. The, the, the most basic idea is that lines are of a certain length. This is true of all poetry, even poetry in, even unwritten poetry like Homer, that is oral poetry. Lines are of a certain length. And we listeners or we writers can time how, how long a line is supposed to be. We know when you get to the end of a line. And lines are always somewhere, depends on the poem, and it depends on the language, and it depends on the culture, but lines are always at least, with ver- again, with vanishingly rare exceptions, at least four syllables long and never more than 20 syllables long. But in whatever poem you're doing, the number of syllables, I'm going to simplify here a little bit, but the number of syllables is going to be the same line after line after line. And what that means is that the end of a line, and this is only true of the end of a line, the end of a line always has to be the end of a word. And that is how people listening to Homer you know, they're not seeing Homer on a page. They're not looking at the enjambments. They're not looking at, oh, it's got a ragged right-hand margin. Or people listening to Shakespeare. Uh, and this is why people, why the editors of Shakespeare argue about where the line endings are in various speeches. But the, because of the way um, the printing worked. But people hearing Shakespeare, people hearing Homer, are hearing a regular recurrence of the end of a word with the end of a line. So there's always a place where they are expecting the word to end. That's the simplest way of defining a line is that there is a regular periodic moment where a word will end. You may not know what the word is going to be, but you know that if there are two syllables left in the line, that you can't have more than a two-syllable word coming. And if there's one syllable left in the line and you've just got to the end of the word, previous word, then, then you have to have a one-syllable word at the end of the line. So lines always end with word endings. Yeah. So how does that and how does like the like emphasis on the end of the line, like how has that changed if you have like an extra syllable or one fewer? Well, so it, it, it makes the, so extra syllables, it depends on whether they're um, uh, stressed or not. So you can have an extra unstressed syllable, and that counts as being, um, as still feeling like the last syllable is the last emphasized syllable. But you can, occasionally you can do two, but really um, almost always if you have, you can have one and not more than one. Um, the, sorry, what was the other Oh, if, they, if you if have you too have few syllables in a line, then you kind of jump. Then something seems wrong. And um, that really brings it out. So the extra syllable, if it's, uh, if it's not emphasized, um, that doesn't really um, draw notice to, of the audience. But if you have too few syllables in a line, the audience really does notice it. Um, and then something has happened. And um, it has the effect of waking, waking them up. These are just all ways of saying that the reason Shakespeare's plays work in poetry in a way that they wouldn't work if they didn't, if, it, if they weren't in poetry, the reason they work in poetry is that part of our brains 
is following a pattern while another part of our brain is following meaning. And the pattern and the meaning will always coincide roughly every two seconds. That something meaningful and something patterned will converge. Then they may diverge at the beginning of the next line, and you can have a loose onset. But then they'll converge at the end of the next line. And in our experience of that is kind of gives a, a three-dimensionality to the experience of language. It's like binocular vision. It's like um, seeing things from two different angles. It gives a kind of three-dimensionality to the language that makes it seem um, you know, super three-dimensional in a way that most language doesn't. And it doesn't matter. We don't miss three-dimensionality in language, but this is an add-on. And it's a really neat add-on. And it can then have the specific effects that we've been talking about today of making you notice a word like born and then making you think about um, or make, making you assume without even thinking, you don't spell it out to yourself, but making you assume that you know why the word born is at the end of the line. Um, you don't say to yourself, I know why the word born is at the end of the line. You just hear it's at the end of the line because it rhymes with scorn. It's something that you hear without giving it a second thought. But you do hear it. And it is, as Nicole says, in your mind. And so when Macduff says, Macduff was from his mother's womb untimely wrenched, then you realize that you were misunderstanding why it was at the end of the line. That you had a reasonable reason it was the end of the, at the end of the line because um, it rhymed with scorn um, and you didn't think twice about it but and you probably don't even remember it's not that it's not that Shakespeare wants you to wants you to say oh wait it rhymed with scorn but that turned out to be misleading it's just that you didn't you remembered the word and you didn't have a really good reason for remembering it, but it didn't bother you that you didn't have a really good reason for remembering it. That's probably the, phenomena, the, phen, the phenomenal experience that you're having. Yes, I remember the word born, and I definitely do remember it, but it didn't seem weird that I should... It doesn't seem weird to me that I remember it. That's probably all... We, we would be able to find in our own minds if we were watching Macbeth. But the reason it doesn't seem weird is that when we got the word rhyming with scorn, um, it didn't raise any flags because rhyming with scorn is it totally explained why the word born was at the end of the line. Okay, so does that make sense to people? I hope you find this like one-tenth as interesting as I do. Um, yeah. So um, Regarding the making inference of the line goes going to the end of the line. What about like um, when like uh, a line is shared by two characters? And um, I am thinking of the act one scene six where like, um, the king arrives at the castle and all the all the lines like they they none of the characters get to end the line. They, mm -hmm. All the all the um, ultimate lines are shared by two characters. Yeah. Those like have to do with like their being. I mean like it, it being like. 
the least memorable, maybe? Like, the well, can you, sorry, so, so I... Like, um, it, it, the, 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 the speech they make are very, like, florally and very quirkly and, like, such they, they are regarded as kind of people with me. Yeah. So it's just like formality. It's all, all the pattern. And, then, mm -hmm. and the, the way, I mean, like, all the characters, King, Banquin, Lady, like, they, they, none of them gets to end alive. They, they all... Right. Yeah, so, so um, people know about shared lines in Shakespeare. That sometimes um, sometimes it makes counting line um, line numbering a little bit hard, mm -hmm. um, but that what you'll have is someone will um, begin a line and then someone else will pick it up and end it. And if you were just to read the words, you would have a line of iambic pentameter. And um, so the reason that people share lines in Shakespeare, one common reason is that the dialogue is very rapid, and um, there are lots of reasons to have rapid dialogue. But one reason can be that someone is interrupting someone else. And um, you'll find this in some screwball comedies as well, even though they're not iambic pentameter. Uh, the quickness with which someone is able to pick up on what someone else is saying um, means that they already know where they're going. And you're not telling me anything new. Um, so just think of all those moments in movies where someone starts parodying what someone else is saying. You know, someone says, I really think it's important, I know, to get your work in on time. You've said this a million times, George. Um, but that kind of picking up, someone starts saying something and someone else picks up on what they're saying. Um, there is a, um, a sharing of meaning, although with a different attitude towards the meaning. It can also simply be an interruption. That is an interruption, but an interruption that makes sense because it's going in the same direction. It can simply be a pure interruption. And um, that is, uh, again, will play well to an audience as an interruption. I think in the scene that you're referring to, it's a ritual. That is, that what they're, um, they know where they're going because what they're, described, what they're saying is what they're supposed to say. And so there doesn't have to be a pause at the end of a line. At the, a character says something and then pauses, and then another character begins a new line. It's because it's ritualized, you know, the rit rituals of xenia or hospitality. Because it's ritualized, it can just go straight on. Does that make sense? So, but it, it is worth noticing um, when lines are shared. Although, again, sometimes that's an editorial decision. Um, that is, an editor will um, figure line endings based on whether the editor thinks the last bit of a speech is then shared with the next speaker. Some t in some editions, you'll have a full line at the end of a speech, and then the next speaker will start another full line, and that'll, that'll read differently from an editor who will start a speech um, at a different place early on, five lines earlier, and then for that reason, and, you know, it, 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 it'll, it'll um, everything will, will um, uh, be backspaced, and you'll only have, let's say, two or three feet at the end of a line, and then the first two or three feet of the next line, or the first three or two feet of the next line, will look like it's picking straight up. So this is one reason that actually... Um, thinking about the layout of the play and editorial decisions um, as to how a scene is laid out actually make a difference to interpretation, and it's therefore worth thinking about those things. 
you know, this is really getting into the weeds, but but um, the weeds have a high cannabis content, so <laughs> if, um, they're 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 not just trivial weeds. Um, sorry, I had to go there. Um, okay, so now we can begin with Act Five, um, <laughs> Scene Three. So, fear not, Macbeth, no man that's born of woman shall ever have power upon thee. Then fly false things and mingle with the English epicures. The mind I sway by and the heart I bear shall never sag with doubt nor shake with fear. Um, I'm almost hesitant. I am hesitant to tell you this. I don't know. I think Shakespeare sometimes has fun with the word shake, especially when he can kind of pun on his own name. Um, (laughs) so um, if he's having fun doing that this would be a little bit of fun for him Um, just a tiny little bit of fun but fun Um, he shake with fear yes (laughs) not only the word shake it's shake with fear <laughs> I can't imagine that you of all people would think that. Cassie thinks everything I say is a stretch. Is that a stretch to say that? That is a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> I win. Isn't it a little weird if he's like intentionally intruding, like if he's intentionally drawing our attention to the fact that this was written by a man whose name is Shakespeare? No, I think it's a private joke on his part. I think I think he's just having a little bit of fun. But if it is there, then we noticed. So well, like, if it's something, who's this something we? <laughs> we as a class just noticed. Yes. <laughs> like if it's something, if it's something that's just supposed to be an inside joke for himself, then we shouldn't notice it because if we notice it, then I think we could be expected to draw some conclusion about it, right? I, <laughs> yes. I mean, to be fair, I think that like when this was written, he didn't think it was going to be studied in a classroom like this. I think he assumed that it was going to be like said for like a second on a stage, and people may hear it, may not. So it's like his little inside joke because you you miss like words and dialogue every everywhere. So I don't think people like he expected people to like be analyzing the shake with fear as deeply as like <laughs> as deeply as we are. I mean, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but I just think that like. He didn't expect anyone to pick up on it. He does. He does have a play where someone shakes a pike. Um, that is a spear. Uh, he doesn't actually say they shake a spear, but it's that's the meaning of it. Man. I feel like it goes back to what we've been talking about, where when we're in the theater, the audience members were divided by the higher social class and lower social class. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if he was intentionally trying to make that joke, I feel like the people of say like the higher social class would get it more than the people of the lowest social class where it's there to see some entertainment. Or it might just be that the actor is getting it. Um, That it's a joke for one of his fellow actors. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I, this kind of reminds me of, like, there's a scene in Tempest where he references, like, Midsummer and um, Taming of the Shrew, Uh like, in the same scene within, like, two minutes. And it's like, wait a second. Yeah. (laughs) Like, is that, like, Taming of the Shrew? And it's just like, it's so random, and it doesn't need to be there, but, yeah. like, it is. And, like, if you are familiar with their earlier plays, like, that's a really late play, but, like, if you know the other ones, like, you you recognize it, and it's like, wait. Yeah. Like, well, you know, there's a great joke in... I mean, you can see these kinds of inside jokes in movies, right? 
lots. Like there's a great one in, there are actually two of them in His Girl Friday. One is, um, some of you will know this, but I just love it so much, that the boring other guy um, who uh, Rosalind Russell is, um, Hildy Johnson, is, has dumped Cary Grant for this completely boring person. And we know that that can't be the ending because this person is so boring. Nothing wrong with him. He's just completely boring. And he's played by Ralph Bellamy, um, who... His last movie was Trading Places with Eddie Murphy. Um, but anyhow, this is 40 years earlier. And um, at one point, Cary Grant is doing some nefarious thing to get Ralph Bellamy out of the way so that he can win Rosalind Russell back. And he has to um, describe this character. His name is Bruce. He has to describe Bruce to someone else. And um, he says, oh, well, he's... Well, he's, he's, he's average height, and his hair color is sort of nondescript, and he's kind of average looking, and he just can't describe him, and he's just, just more and more upset. He says, he looks like, uh, he looks like that fellow in the pictures, Ralph Bellamy. Um, <laughs> so there he's being described as himself. And then um, in the same movie, Cary Grant mentions just out of nowhere, that he once knew a fellow named Archie Leash, but he cut his throat. And Archie Leash is Cary Grant's real name. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so it's, and that was definitely an inside joke. Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, they have a lot of, like, TV shows where, like, they accident, like the actor accidentally calls the other actor by their real name, and they'll leave it in the final edit. Uh-huh. It's really funny if you, like, try and look for that. I know there's a few on, like, Community and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, it's just fun. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's also really interesting, yeah. So I actually, like, wholly agree with this idea that, like, we've been talking about, but just to push this to its natural conclusion, I would like to point out that shake with fear is at the end of a line as we just talked about and not only is fear like an end rhyme word it's also a slant rhyme because fear and, and bear. bear don't really rhyme all right they there you go similar so although i agree that we're probably not really supposed to notice it i do think that we just talked about how we're like subliminally supposed to notice end rhyme words and it is an end rhyme word all right nice <laughs> Yeah, not cool. Is it also maybe a reference to King Lear, like the we that are young shall never something? No. See so much nor live so yeah. long. So like it's shall never sag with doubt nor shake with, I don't know if that's too much. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> it could be. But as Blake once said, enough or too much. Um, that's what he wants. Um, you guys know about Psalm 44, right? Some of you do. So... Um, well, this is relevant. So King James is doing the King James Bible. And the King James Bible, the main translator of the King James Bible, the head of the committee that translated it, anyone know his name? Lancelot Andrews. It's a good name. Yeah. It's a great name. It's a great name. Um, and actually, the, the novelist Walker Percy um, named a main character of one of his novels Lancelot Andrews for that reason. Anyhow, Lancelot Andrews, um, famous... You know, one of the great English writers, because the prose style of the King James Bible is just great. Um, And uh, he was a friend of Shakespeare's. And Shakespeare turned 44 in 1610. Um, And, no, when did he turn 44? Uh, 1608. And um, 
Lancelot Andrews had just translated the 44th Psalm, and he sent the 44th Psalm to Shakespeare, it is thought. And the 44th word of Lancelot Andrews' translation of the 44th Psalm is shake, and the 44th word from the end is spear. And yeah, yeah, I remember yes. this. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a nice Easter egg. So I think it's just an Easter egg, but it's a fun Easter egg. Um, do you know what the nurse says when in Romeo and Juliet when she's? Um, now I do hesitate to. I don't want you to be allergic to the word shake and shake and Shakespeare's work, but. Um, She's describing the earthquake when Juliet fell down as a as a little girl. Do you remember this? Yeah. And um, she bruises, and, and her husband makes the joke about <coughs> uh, a false uh, false on thy face. Time will be when thou shalt fall on thy back. Wilt thou not, Jewel? Um, but she, the nurse, is describing that moment, and she says the earthquake, and and she says shake, quoth the dove house. Um, so that's a weird thing for a dove house to say. Shake. Um, but it's just, I just... I hate this, like, visual that I'm getting of Shakespeare, like, in real time. Just cackling? Like, winking at the audience. Like, do you get it, guys? Like, my name is Shakespeare. Like, doesn't that make you, like, viscerally uncomfortable? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's hilarious, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not going to I put Harrington. <laughs> Okay, so, so a servant enters. We still have plenty of time. Um, and um, we know the servant doesn't look happy. The devil damn thee black, thou cream-faced loon. Um, where gost thou that goose look? And the servant starts saying, well, this is a good case of, of, um, of shared lines. There's 10,000 geese villain. So what he's about to say is there's 10,000 soldiers come about. But he starts saying, there's 10,000 geese, villain, says Macbeth, soldier, sir. Bro, go prick thy face and overread thy fear, thou lily-livered boy. So you're so pale, just um, start, start um, pricking your face so that there's blood. What soldiers patch death of thy soul, those linen cheeks of thine are counselors to fear. What soldiers wayface, servant, the English force so please you. Macbeth, take thy face, hence. And then... I think he has an amazing speech. Satan, he calls to um, one of his last loyal um, servants, a young man, Satan, I am sick at heart when I behold. And then he never finishes that. Satan, I say. So he's about to start a soliloquy. I think this is an amazing moment that he's about to start a soliloquy. And then he interrupts himself because Satan still hasn't shown up. And then he doesn't do the soliloquy. And um, I think, let's talk about this a little bit on Tuesday. Yeah, but I was just going to say the fact Satan and Satan and the theory that it could be Satan. Yeah, but I don't think so. I think it, um, there was a Satan. I think um, when he does come in, he's not satanic. And I think um, uh, it's Macbeth. It's an amazing way of describing Macbeth alone, that he's yeah. so alone that he can't even soliloquize, that he plans to soliloquize and doesn't. Um, all right, read Act One of Antony and Cleopatra as well, and I will send you um, the source in Plutarch for Antony and Cleopatra, which you should also read.
So that'll be on latte. Have a good weekend. Yeah. Um,